Jeffrey Moore, who is an author, speaker, advisor, uh, a venture partner at Moore Davidow. Jeff, welcome to the show. Well, it's nice to be here, Richard, and I enjoy being part of your program. Thank you. Well, Jeff, you're obviously most well-known. You're well-known for a lot of things, but you're most well-known, I would say, for Crossing the Chasm, an iconic, iconic book in Silicon Valley and elsewhere. But tell me a little bit about um, you know, how that book came about and what you were doing when you came up with that book. Sure, so I had joined a, uh, really I think the premier consultancy in marketing uh, for high tech firms in the 1980s. It's called Regis McKenna. And one of the things that was great about being at Regis McKenna was you got to see a lot of companies, uh, startups launch their products. And they launched Apple, they launched uh, Tandem, they launched a bunch of very exciting companies. But um, we, we kept on seeing these companies. We'd launch them. They'd have these incredible launches. They'd have these great customer lists. And then they sort of languish and kind of die. Uh, or at least they would just kind of go sideways. And so I began looking at that. And we'd been rich, Regis had introduced the technology adoption lifecycle. And all I did was say, you know, there's something funny going on at the beginning of the technology adoption lifecycle. We ended up calling it the chasm. Hmm. And the key, the key insight was just what creates success with early adopters actually creates failure with the mainstream. And so the, the, the challenging thing that all these startups are going through is just when they were at the height of their success with their early adopters, thinking, well, I'll just scale this and climb the mountain, uh, when they went into the mainstream market, they actually got a cold shoulder. And they, didn't, they couldn't figure out what was happening. And so that was the struggle. And that's where crossing the chasm came from. So where did you, what, what gave you that insight? Or how did you pick that up? What, Tell me a little bit about what, what, well, what really keyed you into that. You know, it was funny. We were just, I was sort of playing with the, the various uh, psychographics of the various types. The technology adoption lifecycle says that there's technology enthusiasts, early adopters, the early majority, late majority, and the laggards. And so we were, I was sort of playing in my mind with the psychographics of the, of the early adopters who tended to be be bold, you know, go big or go home, risk-reward oriented. And then I began thinking about the early majority who were more pragmatists and more risk-averse. And and the idea was, you know, well, your references uh, and they were and references were incredibly important to them, but it became clearer and clearer that the references of an early adopter were not the references they were interested in. Mm. They were interested in other people like them doing what were they doing. And of course, if nobody started yet, then it was like, well, I'm not going to start. You start. Well, I'm not going to start. You start. Mm. And so that was where that plus the fact the other thing that we saw over and over again was. Um, I want to see it in production. I want to see references. I want to see complete solutions. And of course, at that point, a startup doesn't really have a lot of references, and the solutions are not really complete. There's a lot of work that still has to be done. So there was this chasm, this period that just nobody, you know, the early adopters were saying, sure, but we're kind of, you know, we've kind of done our move, and the, late, the majority was going, I'm not ready. Now, was there a specific company or two that you observed that really kind of gave you that insight? Oh, well, the, the three companies prior to joining Regis McKenna, I took three products into the chasm and none out. So, so basically, I had, I had the personal scars of doing this, and I realized that, you know, we, would, we made the same mistake over and over again, which is we continued the marketing program that brought us success at the beginning, 
and it became obvious after, you know, uh, and you, the thing that was wonderful about being at Regis is you got to work with lots of companies. So after a while, you, you know, the pattern recognition could click in. It was hard when you were the individual because you always thought, oh, if we'd only done this or we'd only done that, we would have been successful. And then when you saw enough companies having trouble, you thought, well, wait a minute. Maybe there's something structural here. And that's what were the three products that you took into the casino? Well, so, <laughs> so the one that I, the most painful for me probably was a company called Enhances. It was a Kleiner Perkins company, and it was uh, analytics for, for semiconductor processing. It was a supply chain idea, uh, applying statistics and graphical statistics, and the early adopters loved it. And uh, but the but the mainstream guys kept on saying, well, but I don't like the report writer, or I don't like this, or I don't like that. And and what they were really saying is, I don't think you have enough references, and I don't think your solution is complete enough. I think it's interesting, so they'd always want you to come and demo it. Mm -hmm. You always have a great meeting, but you never really got a significant order. Mm -hmm. And so what we learned from crossing the chasm was. When you're in that state, you have to pick a niche target market and go to that market. They have to be really in pain so that they're willing to spend the extra time with you. And you have to answer their problem 100%. And that was not the way we were thinking. We were thinking we were going to be you know, a mass market for everybody. And, and a niche market felt like a very counterintuitive thing to do. But it turned out to be the right answer. How did you come up with the, the phrase, crossing the chasm? Well, so we, we, we had this technology adoption life cycle, and so I realized, well, really, you got to take the front part of the bell curve and put it out to the left, and the rest of it went out to the right, and then there was this middle, and, uh, you know, I'm an English major, so chasm was a chasm was a word that came to mind, and then crossing the chasm. brilliant marketing. Well, it worked. It, it worked. <laughs> so when you first came up with the idea, and you sort of, I mean, did you think that at that time it was like such this, I mean, as it turns out, quite a revolutionary idea to end up applying a lot of it. Did you think that that was the case at the time, or did you think this was just a little, really nothing? Well, little? it was funny. You know, when I first did it, I, you know, I would give talks about it. And um, it, they would rest. You could see that people were going, "Oh wow, this is this is this makes sense. This makes sense." And particularly because you know they were carrying around this burden of the fact that you know their whatever their thing was wasn't successful. So there was a little bit of like redemption or get out of jail free or some sort of uh, experience. So you could kind of you could kind of tell that. And then I do. I remember. Um, I was giving a talk, or I was at some sort of uh, conference at some point, and I introduced myself to somebody. Hi, who are you? Blah blah. And the guy said, all of a sudden, he said, "Oh, you're the chasm guy," <laughs> and I went, "Oh, the chasm guy." So that's when I thought maybe I could start my own firm. And is that, bef but that that was already after you'd written the book. Yeah, I'd written the. By that okay. time, I, I okay. think I. I think I'd written the book. I'd been giving talks about the book for several years before I actually wrote right. it. But, now, what, 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 when you first came with the idea, did you think that that was enough to write a book, or did it actually take – I mean, it seems like a, a simple idea. Then how did you sort of turn that idea it's into It's so interesting. I actually was at the time trying to write up an entire sort of playbook for what we were doing at Regis. Regis had written a book on PR that was one of the best books ever called The Regis Touch. But he never had written, written the companion book for the consulting practice. And then more and more of the work was being consulting work. So I thought, well, maybe I'll try to write it up. So I, I, I wrote it up and and uh, uh, some of the partners said, well, look, we came to work for Regis, not for you. So please, you know, just... So I said, oh, this is my stuff. Oh, yeah, that's your stuff. So then I, I took it to a literary agent and he said, you know, this is kind of interesting, but it's all over the map. We should just pick one chapter and make that into a book. So I said, well, this would be the chapter I would choose. And so he was the one who actually got me to just focus on that one, that one idea. Now, when the book came out, I mean... But did it surprise you how well it did and how the thing really caught well, it's, on? I mean, it's I'm really sure fun. This is a great story. So, so we, so he's my literary agent. It was who at the time was still pretty new. 
he said, well, we have this offer from HarperCollins, but it's only $10,000. He wanted $50,000 advance. And I said, well, let's, let's talk. And so we talked to them. And well, so I said, so $10,000. I said, well, what would it take for you to make back your money? Uh-huh. And they said, well, it'd have to sell like 3,000 copies. Uh-huh. And I said, wow. I said, so uh, what would be really good? Oh, 5,000 copies. This is a niche book. That'd be great. <laughs> so I said, wow. I said, so what if after 7,500 copies, we upped the royalty? Would that be okay? Yeah, that'd be fine. No problem. So because he's thinking <laughs> yeah, he's right, never right, going to get there. Never going to get there. Never going to get there. <laughs> so then it turned out the way it actually grew was the first six months, it, so it, it did sell 3,000 copies. The next six months, 6,000. The next six months, 12,000. I mean, it, it started to, it, to, to, to snowball. Huh. And then... I mean, it's it's sold now. I mean, it's, I've been through three uh, revisions total, but just changing the examples, it's sold over a million copies worldwide. But it it was a very slow build. It wasn't mm. like it wasn't like a a hot a hot ticket. Was there any like sort of key thing event that happened that really catapulted the book into sort of the next level? Was, was there somebody who I don't, promoted it or anything? No, like that? it wasn't like it, it was a much more. Uh, what happened was it caught on to HP. And so, and what was interesting about that was, boy, talk about a word of mouth sort of niche market. So therefore, every people say, "Oh yeah, you got to take that course," and then they would bring me into a group, and then they we do a little project around the product in their group that had to cross the chasm, and that really caught on. And the engineers loved it because it was the first marketing book they'd had that kind of made sense to them. Mm-hmm. It was sort of a systems approach to marketing as opposed to, you know, just sort of like um, uh, kind of more of a verbal approach. So they really related to it, and so that it, I, I'll bet. I ended up going to 30 or 40 or 50 campuses throughout HP. And then, you know, the, you know, we, you get into the tech world and then tech people tell other tech people. Uh, so it, And then, of course, I was at Regis uh, uh, McKenna, and that background, I think, gave me a certain amount of exposure. So people kind of said, oh, yeah, Jeff Moore, Regis McKenna, yeah, they, he's a good guy. So I, I owe a lot to that to that background for mm-hmm. sure. And now the book is just like super well-known. I mean, the title is super well-known, isn't it? I mean, it is. You know, it's kind of fun. The reason I had to revise it twice was... Um, so the people keep teaching it. So it's still in the curriculums. Yeah, it's still sort of the go-to book for B2B high-tech, uh, particularly for B2B high-tech startups. Um, but you know, these kids would read it in the classroom. They say, well, I guess it's a good book, but who are these companies? I've never heard of any of these companies. <laughs> so so twice I had – basically I didn't change anything. I only changed the examples. So I didn't change any of the rest of the argument because I thought if I do that, I'm going to have to rewrite the whole book. So I didn't, I, I wouldn't do it. But I changed all the examples twice. And that worked, and they work quite well. The yeah, yeah. The, the thing that's held, as long as it's B2B, I think the big change in this century is I don't think there was any, I had, certainly in 1991, I had no idea that there would ever be a consumer computing. Uh, industry of any of any significance. There was there was Atari at the time, and there was mm-hmm. you know B- Pong and Coleco and some of these uh, uh, kind of tiny uh, home computers for games, but it, it wasn't significant, and it wasn't really. I mean, until after 2000 that 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 the computer uh, took off and when the computer p- did take off then there were a bunch of people saying well you can see a chasm but i don't know and i f- i realized after a while you know it really is a b2b model mm-hmm. and and so uh, and now what's interesting is so the comp- when the consumer stuff came in i think the interesting crossing the chasm waned now what's happened in this decade is all the businesses who are trying to bring the consumer back into the enterprise. So it's more, we call it now B to B to C, where the, where the high-tech vendor is helping target 
connect with digital to their consumers. So there's a B2C part that Target's doing, but they need help from Salesforce. So so basically, and that is, a, so the, the first, that B2B is a crossing the chasm problem, and then the B2C is more of a consumer problem. So How come the B2C doesn't have the crossing the chasm problem? Well, it, because what happens in the B2C, the key to the crossing the chasm problem is there's a relatively um, complex decision. If you think about how enterprise decisions are made, they have to be sort of negotiated with you know the IT person and the line of business person and the CFO. And they're relatively high-risk uh, decisions, and there's relatively low data. So the high-risk, low data in a business context tends to create a very challenging decision dynamic, which you have to get over. In B2C, it's like, hey, download this app, try it. If you don't like it, you know, get it off your phone. So there is, there's still what we call a tornado. There's still the issue of does it, does it catch on and go viral or not? Mm-hmm. And so the B2C is all about can you get viral? Uh, and that, that was just a, a different problem. It, they, weren't, they weren't totally unrelated, and people have applied crossing the chasm to consumer. And you, it's not crazy, but it's not really the best model. Mm-hmm. So when you look back on as the 25 years since yeah. then? Uh, well, 19, yeah, 25 years, 25 exactly. Years. Yes. And when you look back, so it's, it has still held up pretty well? I mean, yeah. I mean, you say you changed the examples of basically the thesis, and you really haven't had to revise that very much. I have not. So what's happened is, um, so what ha- you know, I've written a bunch of books in between, but so what's happened is it came out, and then inside the tornado was the, the other half, which is, okay, you got across the chasm. Now you got the other problem, which is now the market takes off like crazy. How do you play that game? And that was a, that, so that was the second book. And th- those were kind of companion books uh, uh, So uh, for that. And then there was a book called The Gorilla Game about investing and what does this do to your investment value and why do stocks in the, in the tech market on the NASDAQ act so differently from stocks on the, on the, on the, on the New York Stock Exchange or, or elsewhere. And so that was that. And then we had the tech melt down in 2001. And what was interesting about that is enterprise IT went really cold for a number of years, partially because, we, I don't know if you remember Y2K, but everybody bought everything all over again one more time. And so there right. was a really pulled forward an enormous amount of sales. So there was a natural sort of divot. Uh, and then and then when the consumer came, came in a- after that. And so then from then on, it was more about how do you work with incumbent companies who are now trying to deal with the next wave of innovation. So they've gotten across the chasm, they've been through inside the tornado. Now the next wave of innovation's coming along and they're they're feeling, you know, the innovator's dilemma kind of idea. They're struggling with how do I balance pursuing my existing book of business with my existing customers, which is in a mature category, and somehow figure out a way to participate in the next generation of innovation. And that's been a huge struggle over virtually the entire of the of this century. So you obviously still teach the crossing the chasm to yep. people, the companies and stuff. Is it also, I assume it's used in academics and professors? I mean, is it... Where, where, it, show, where it shows up a lot is in anybody who's doing a center for entrepreneurship. So the Stanford, of course, has done that. Berkeley, of course, has done that. But there's a lot of not CMU. There's a lot of, com- a lot of uh, around, the, uh, around the country. People are very interested in innovation and entrepreneurship. And if you're getting lean startup and any of that stuff, if you're moving toward, um, uh, and now that it's more B2B, as I said, when it was just B2C, I think people were using more just lean startup, minimum viable product was the key idea. Mm. For crossing the chasm, it's more like minimum viable whole product, meaning I need a complete solution for somebody on the other side of the chasm, and who's that going to be? Mm. Uh, so that's been fun. And, and yeah, but it's it's fun, and, and I one of my commitments is I want to, 
continue to make sure that that intellectual property stays revised. There's a, there's a Chasm Institute now, which says uh, it, it's devoted virtually entirely to uh, teaching crossing the chasm, you know, both over the internet and, and in public seminars and in private workshops. So that's been, been kind of fun. Has anyone sort of taken, I mean, obviously this book's been around for a while, has anyone sort of taken the chasm and, you know, kind of built upon that? What are some of the, the sort of the follow-on ideas that have come from that? Because, you know, that's how ideas tend to They sure do. Grow. They sure do. Um, well, so let's, so in terms of, I'm trying to think about, I think the, the really interesting intellectual work in this century has been done around the cons rethinking it from the consumer side. So I do. I think Steve Blank's work, Steps to an Epiphany, and Eric Reese's lean, um, uh, The Lean Startup have been two really, really good ones for that. Uh, Seth Godin's done some really interesting work around marketing. Um, and then the work I'm involved with right now is how do you, how do you fund and organize a crossing the chasm effort inside a large established enterprise. Mm -hmm. It turns out it's a it's the same problem from the point of view of the market. It's a totally different problem from the point of view of the enterprise. Mm -hmm. Because venture backed startups, they're they, you know, it's hard to do a startup, but the good news is everybody's on your side, meaning the people who give money to venture capitalists to invest want them to invest in startups, in, in J, effectively in J-curves. You know, you, you're going to lose a lot of money, and then you're going to make money. Uber, you know, great example. They just lost a billion dollars, and they've got a $50 billion valuation. Okay, but everybody's saying, yes, keep going, right? So the, 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 the people that put money in or want that. The venture capitalists themselves are very good at managing, selecting teams, and helping people through J-curves. Your, your, your law firms like your own are helping them and putting together uh, all, the, all the legal agreements that they need. Uh, the, even the, cust uh, the, the people that join the company, me or, or in for the ride, you know, it's, you know, just work whatever hours it takes because we're still losing money. We got to get through the other side, but we're all going to be rich. It's all going to be wonderful. And the early customers are kind of excited. So there's a lot of problems, but you're not conflicted. Nobody's conflicted. Now you go inside a large enterprise, you have exactly the same opportunity. And the first thing you go to your investors, you say, hey, look at this. We did it once. We can do it again. They say, time out. You've already gotten across the chasm inside the tornado. You've got a great business here. Don't, don't, I don't want, if I want to do a venture, I'll invest in venture capital. I want you to stick to your knitting, so stay on that. So your investors are very lukewarm or worse. Your salespeople are going, you say, well, don't you want to sell? It's so exciting. Remember how exciting it was to sell the other one? They say, yeah, but, you know, I've got a big quota to make. Uh, there's no budget for this yet. I don't really know the right people. Uh, it takes a long time. Uh, if I'm going to make club, I probably got to sell the stuff that we always have sold. And the sales management saying, "Do you want me to make my number?" I mean, the, you know, I mean, if you put a lot of people on this new thing, I don't think you get anything like the the, the return you're going to want. And you, even your customers will say, "You know, you haven't really given me everything you said you were going to give me on the first time around." So you take it. And by the way, this new thing isn't really what I want. In fact, it might even undermine what I'm trying to do with your old things. So, and your partners are giving you the same message, saying, "You know, look." We have a sweet ecosystem here. You're starting a new ecosystem with this new product. I don't even know if I would be part of it. Uh, I don't. I don't. So basically, you have all these conflicted interests. Mm -hmm. And what happens is, when you go into the annual budgeting process, at the beginning, it's not too bad because the beginning there's enough money to do your existing business and put a little bit into the new one, and that's fine. And everybody says this is exciting. But if you're going to scale the new one. At some point, you got to put a lot of resources into the new one, and there's not enough money. Mm. And so basically, you're going to go through a J-curve. Your, 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 your financial metrics are going to go down, potentially deep down, before they come back up. And you could put your company in play. 
You know, and, and the the whole politics of the budgeting process is like, what the heck are you doing? Why are you giving them money when I should get the money? Blah, blah, blah. So, so the challenge in the new book was all about how could you have a set of frameworks, kind of like crossing the chasm frameworks, which would let you have a open, principled, transparent conversation about what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Because we have a failure mode at work. We got to stop the failure mode. We have to do that. We have to have a pretty clear conversation about what's and happening. And that's the your new book, which is it's called, called Zone to Win. Yes, and yes. unlike uh, unlike virtually almost all the books in between Crossing the Chasm and Zone to Win, uh, it's not a strategy book. It's really about look. I don't think I don't think you have a strategy problem. You have a resource allocation crisis, mm. and you have to have a principled discussion about. What are you going to do here? Because mm-hmm. the worst thing you can do is to start and start going big, and halfway through take your foot off the gas, because you you don't get to critical mass, but you do jeopardize your existing business, and you kind of teach the world that you're not a winner. Mm-hmm. You're, it's it's it's, just, it's a very bad outcome. Now, even though you've written a lot of books, obviously Crossing the Chasm is your most famous. Totally. But is it actually your – was it your favorite book? Do you think it's actually your best book or do you actually like some of the books you wrote later even though Crossing the Chasm will always be the most famous? Well, so so for sure Crossing the Chasm will always be the most famous. It's a little bit like you don't get two hit songs. you got one hit song. <laughs> okay, so let's be clear about that. Of course. Okay. I can't get no satisfaction. That's the Rolling Stones. <laughs> Everything else, God bless them. Uh, so uh, um, I think right for me right now, and, and maybe it's just the recency effect, Crossing the Chasm and my most recent one, the reason why I, th- I think distinguishes them from the five in between is um, the five in between w- were, I think, intellectually interesting. They introduced frameworks that people used. They didn't create that viral effect where people would punch each other in the ribs while you're giving the talk. Crossing the Chasm used to do that because they, people literally, they would just start laughing at each other because they go, this was this exactly so us. And the latest one's getting some of the same re- reaction, which I'd forgotten how much fun it is to get that reaction. So the, that's that's kind of those are probably my two favorites right now. When you when you look at back across the chasm, does it seem like it was so obvious at the time, or that, or, or when you first came up with it, or was it really like where people thought that was so insightful? Or did, did it was one of those things where as soon as you said it, people went, "Well, duh." Uh, I mean, it, 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 and so there was a wonderful um, line by Alexander Pope, which is something about um, true wit is nature to advantage dressed, what off was thought but ne'er so well expressed. So, so the idea, <laughs> well, definitely an English yeah, yeah, there, there it is. Yeah, yeah coming back. So, so I think, I think I, you get a bunch, and you know, the idea is really cool, and people go, "Oh, that I, I knew that. I mean, I, I knew that. I never said that, but I knew it." Right. And so that felt really good. Yeah, that's interesting. It's fun. Now, when you, I mean, you you obviously are writing a lot of different books. Do you have a lot of other ideas lined up for books that you want to write? Or do you do you kind of write one and then you just sort of go along thinking, well, if I come up with an idea, it'll be great. So, so here's what, yeah, well, it's really funny what happens when you write a book. So you write a book. And so you give speeches, you know, fine. And somebody comes to your speech and says, that's a good, I want you to come in and give that talk to my organization. So you come in and give the talk. And some of the organizations say, you know, this is really good. We'd like to apply your principles. Why don't you come in and help us do that? So you come in and you work with the team and you apply the principles. And about halfway through the project, you realize, you know, that framework isn't exactly right. Mm-hmm. There, you know, really, it should be twisted a little bit. So you start modifying the materials a little bit. And you think, okay, well, it's fine. I can still stay with the book, but I have to remember every time I get to here, I've got to tell them, no, no, go left, not right. So then you go to the next client. And every client you have, there's always these exceptions. So after a while, you get this body of material, you realize, oh, my gosh, I have to write another book. So basically, and then you write another book and it starts again. So seventh book, right? I mean, it's just about every three three years, if you work with the material that you publish – 
and if you work with it authentically, none of it can stand up. I mean, it, reality always is more interesting than you are, and so you continually have to have to adapt and adjust. That said, I the books I want to write now, I think I'm hopefully this is my last business book because I got a bunch of things I want to write that have nothing to do with business. I love to write. I mean, I'm, I'm really about writing is my love. Do you enjoy writing more or speaking more? Well, that's a little. That's hard for an Irishman to answer, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> um, I love. I love. The thing that's fun about speaking is when you when you realize that speaking is not about you, that speaking is about the audience experience, and that therefore you're in service to the audience. What's great about that is um, the audience teaches you stuff, even even in, even in a large audience, but small audiences are even better because they, 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 they either ask you questions or they wrestle or they don't. They either laugh at something that you didn't want them to laugh at or they laugh at something, or they don't laugh at something you did. Or they, te- they teach you stuff. So that's, I think always when you're interacting with people, that's, that's probably the time you learn the most. Uh, writing for me, just writing though, is... It's just a real. It's just a very, very fulfilling activity. So I, I mean, I will write probably until like you know my hand falls off. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jeff, this has been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate your taking the time. If you ever do decide to do something else, you'll definitely have to come back and tell me. About well, it. thanks a lot, Richard. I appreciate the chance to to be with you and your and your audience. This is Richard Shu and Jeffrey Moore. Thanks.